Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is off this week. I'm Bob Garfield. My position is that I was not disrespectful to Mr. Phillips. I respect him. I'd like to talk to him. I mean, in hindsight, I wish we could have walked away and avoided the whole thing. But I can't say that I'm sorry for listening to him and standing there. The MAGA kid, Nicholas Sandman, the not especially remorseful centerpiece of a week-long national nervous breakdown. In a moment, some thoughts about where that episode has left us. You already know how it began. The stare down between the high school student and the native elder was everywhere. Newly elected Congresswoman Deb Holland is among the first Native Americans elected to Congress, and she reacted on Twitter, writing, this veteran put his life on the line for our country. The student's display of blatant hate, disrespect, and intolerance is a signal of how common decency has decayed under this administration. Heartbreaking. The mainstream media quick reaction force was led by the Associated Press, which reported that the kids were jeering at Phillips and further passed along an accusation that moments earlier, the boys had been, quote, heckling a couple of black men nearby. The headline for that story in the Chicago Tribune was Catholic high school students in MAGA hats mock Native American after D.C. rally. Look at some of these headlines. The Hollywood Reporter, students in Make America Great Again hats mock Native Americans after Washington rally. CNN, teens in Make America Great Again hats taunted a Native American elder at the Lincoln Memorial. Vox, white students in MAGA gear crashed the indigenous people's march and harassed participants. The media outrage even got, shall we say, Proactive. GQ's Nathaniel Friedman tweeted that the Covington kids should be doxxed. And my CNN colleague Kirsten Powers tweeted at the school's superintendent. What are you going to do about this, Superintendent Mike Kleins? This is absolutely contrary to Catholic teaching, and you know it. Do something. Also, these boys need a better education. You are failing them. Of course, people fulminated. It was just another reminder of how low we have sunk. There was this whole mob of poster children for arrogant, intolerant, white privilege and oppression. And on social media and TV, wherever you looked, trigger warning, that smirk. Then, other footage emerged. Not so close up, but far more revealing, capturing the preceding few minutes and with a wider view. The kids had been under verbal attack in the vilest imaginable language from a group of Hebrew Israelites, identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a black supremacist group that takes a Westboro Baptist Church approach to protesting its version of biblical prophecy. A bunch of child molesting Look at all these dusty crackers with that racist garbage on. Look at these dirty That's right. A bunch of incest babies. A bunch of babies made out of incest. The biggest terrorist on the face of this earth is the pale-faced man, woman, and child. Whether they were unnerved or amused, the kids responded by doing school cheers, not build a wall, school cheers. That's when the video shows native elder Nathan Phillips walking toward the boys, not the opposite. Oh, and the kids were mobbed together because they were waiting for a bus. Oh, and Elder Phillips' account of what he saw doesn't square with the video. 
And Phillips, in a conversation with NPR's David Green, acknowledged that he thought, based on two years of Trumpism news, that the MAGA-adorned white kids were a threat to the black protesters. You saw this group of black Israel, Hebrew Israelites as potentially in danger by this, this large group of white men, based on what you had seen in the news in, in our country in, in recent months and years. Yes. Thank you for that clarity, because that's... That's what it was in my mind and in my heart. All of the above is what comes of Twitter-style mediation. It doesn't leave much room or time for nuance or reflection. What it's really handy for is certainty, a ruinous glut of certainty. And so, very, very soon, on all platforms, America was playing the gold-dress, blue-dress identity game. As Julie Irwin Zimmerman wrote for Atlantic, quote, Tell me how you first reacted, and I can probably tell where you live, who you voted for in 2016, and your general take on a list of other issues. Meanwhile, the Washington Post and other news organizations ran corrections. New York Times columnist Kara Swisher deleted a tweet in which she said she wanted to find, quote, every one of these blank kids and give them a very large piece of my mind. And apologetic celebrities copped to rushing to judgment. This is Whoopi Goldberg and Joy Behar on The View. Why is, do we keep making the same mistake? Because we're, we're desperate to get Trump out of office. <laughs> That's why. Not the mea culpas sparked yet another wave of revulsion, not just in harem scarum social media, but in the supposedly deliberate press where commentators castigated those so indecent as to, in the face of new context, reevaluate their first reactions. Now freshly irate hot takes burned through screens everywhere. In Deadspin, writer Laura Wagner called out the apologetic by name, informing them not only were they wrong in their judgments about what they saw in the additional footage, but they were apologists for the evil apparatus that Magab represents. Quote, I don't see how you could watch this and think otherwise unless you're willing to gaslight yourself and others in the service of granting undeserved sympathy to the privileged. Vox brought in author and education professor Adam Howard, who has written a book about privilege and affluent education, and who evidently can divine intention and motivation from facial expressions. The MAGA kid's smirk, he said, quote, communicates, I'm better than you. I don't even have enough respect for you to even say anything to communicate, but I will communicate everything I need through my body language. On such evidence, 17th century Salem women were hanged as witches. Maybe most startling was a slate piece beneath a headline declaring that the MAGA kids, quote, aren't innocent victims. Following a rigorous examination of the ambiguous video evidence, Ruth Graham concludes that we mustn't, quote, let the complexities of the scene at the Lincoln Memorial dissuade us from telling the truth about who Trump is and exactly what he stands for. I'm sorry, isn't the truth about Trump pretty well documented every single day without pinning it on a bunch of high school kids? Meanwhile, the whole episode absolutely obscured the realities of Trumpism and instead opened the press up to charges of bias and even vigilantism. In the mind of your average reporter in Washington, these kids are from a different country. Less than that, actually. They're from a hostile country, a place we must subdue for our own safety. And there's some there there. It's as if the press in those first few crucial hours were not just feeding on Twitter, but turning into Twitter 
which is to say reflexive, emotional, careless, and shallow, which, as I noted at the outset, is a bad place for this episode to leave us. Because in journalism, there is time to gather evidence. There is time for reflection. There is space for context and nuance. Hot takes last week left behind a hot mess. Look, it's entirely possible that the Covington Catholic High School boys are as loathsome as advertised. But no matter what we assume, we simply do not know. Yes, the society is poisoned with hate and injustice. Yes, our history reeks of abused privilege, impunity, and oppression. But journalism must take care of how and where it imposes that narrative. Rounding up, ganging up on conveniently smirking suspects, that's a mob thing. That's a Twitter thing. That is not us. Coming up, MAGA hats, are they really the new white hood? This is on the media. So here's something I bet every On The Media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. The Magatine's debacle last weekend demonstrated how vulnerable the press are to myriad social and political forces. In the MAGA affair, says tech writer Charlie Warzel, we should especially not forget the intervention of right-wing operatives. Warzel, who was between jobs at his alma mater BuzzFeed and his future gig at the New York Times, watched from home, tracking the various meta-narratives as the story blew up. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I want to begin on the second day of the uproar, when the media seemed to pretty suddenly reverse direction. How did that come to pass? This was the result of a whole bunch of videos that emerged showing different angles as sort of had a Zapruder film effect of showing that there was more than, than the initial video had shown. And the publication Reason picked this up and started putting this narrative together that there was more than meets the eye to this encounter. And you said that, as a consequence, some respectable journalists fell for bad faith arguments. Now, I read that Reason article by Robbie Suave, who could be described as uh, a contrarian provocateur. But I think he was the only writer I read on the subject all week long who actually fessed up to having no idea what was in those kids' heads, that it was a stretch to impute racial hate or malice. Bad faith? I don't think that the Reason article was written in bad faith. I think there is an element of delighting in the fact of seeing this new narrative that sort of showed the mainstream press as being maybe overreactive. But I think that the bad faith narrative was surfaced 
sort of at the same time by a lot of uh, right-wing provocateurs and uh, members of what I call the pro-Trump media. And I believe that these individuals saw an example of perhaps the press overreacting and used it to launch almost an equal and opposite campaign to bully and harass journalists into stating that they had made a huge mistake and to sort of illustrate the fact that the mainstream media has no credibility. It was the Foxes, the Breitbarts, the Gateway Pundits, the Mike Cernoviches, who went off on the whole enemy of the people fake news thing. And you believe this goaded people into rethinking their positions, or was it just the fact of the new video and the new angles? I think that there was an overcorrection from a lot of members of the media and the sort of apologies for maybe, you know, getting the context wrong initially by mainstream journalists is then manipulated into the mainstream media apologizes for victimizing these young children who didn't deserve anything, for ruining their lives. That was sort of the narrative that was being put forward all across the far right corners of the internet, the online provocateurs and the message boards and the fever swamps. And it kind of, you know, trickles down to the bigger mass communication platforms, to Fox News, to Breitbart. As journalists in the mainstream media, we have to be very careful about the way that we portray and and even correct ourselves. I thought that there wasn't a lot of nuance in the way people corrected. You know, they said, I was, I was wrong. I mischaracterized the situation completely. And I didn't see a lot of, you know, we still need to be talking about these issues of white privilege and bigotry and, you know, polarization. I didn't really see that. Instead, I heard, I made a mistake. I wish I could take the whole thing back. And I think it's important to have the nuance, but not completely capitulate. What you're just saying perplexed me that, well, never mind the details. You know, the facts may be a little murky, but the larger story is undeniable. So why be distracted by what the kids did or did not do? Can't we just focus on the racism that so infects our society? Is that the right take? Well, I certainly think it's what complicates all of this, right? There were a lot of people who said, we should take a lot more time before we share something that outrages us. We need to step back, take a breather. I agree with that to some point, but these other angles of the video didn't emerge until, in some cases, a day later. If someone sees something that is a perceived injustice and there's video evidence of it, as journalists, we have a real balance to strike, I think, because we shouldn't wait for 24 hours and ignore an important story. It's all about walking that line. And I guess at some point it ceases to be about even the truth behind the events. It becomes just the latest battle in the culture wars, which raises the question of really how important was it in my filter bubble? It was all-consuming. You know, my Twitter blew up, as I'm sure did yours, but is this story itself worthy of the attention that in our circles was paid to it? <laughs> That feels like almost an unanswerable question in the sense that these things all become important because a lot of people decide that they're important in the moment. In the aftermath to this, we're seeing a lot of people talk about how journalists use Twitter and the bubble focus that we all have being inside there. I think one of the fallouts of that is we all log on every day, and especially in the Trump era, we're sort of creating a narrative together. We're all living history and writing it as we go. And I think 
one side effect of all of that is we tend to see moments, even if they're somewhat small, as indicative of the bigger story, as a big chapter in this meaty story. And I think sometimes we do blow it up out of proportion, and then that becomes a story in itself, and it just sort of feeds itself. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that you are at the moment between gigs. You've recently left BuzzFeed, and you're joining the New York Times op-ed page. So as a consequence, you didn't actually have to uh, report on this thing. How would you have? (laughs) And would you have screwed it up? I was someone who initially, I didn't add any commentary to it, but on Saturday morning when that video first showed up, I felt a pang of outrage, like so many people, and I hit the retweet button. Had I been at an outlet, I would have felt a lot of pressure to weigh in. I'm thankful that I didn't have to weigh in on this particularly. The only ways that I have talked about this are in a Twitter thread, which I thought about for a long time and actually wrote the thread out over a series of days, which is kind of unusual. And then things like this, talking in an audio medium, because I think that that actually gives you the ability to have nuance. You can hear in my voice that I'm struggling with some of these questions that, you know, there's no definitive voice of God projection in that that's really helpful in contentious and murky and treacherous situations like this. Yeah, so would you have uh, failed? If an editor of any kind had put a gun to my head and said, we need something in the next two hours, this, this event is you know, blowing up, there's an incredibly high chance that I would have written something that I would have regretted. Charlie, uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Charlie Warzel, ex of BuzzFeed, is soon to be a writer at large for the New York Times opinion page. It was an episode that began as a thumbnail and became a meme, smirking kid in MAGA hat, nose to nose with drummer. CNN contributor Angela Rye. Just think about the symbol of that red hat. This Make America Great Again hat is just as maddening and frustrating and triggering for me to look at as a KKK hood. White hood? Really? That bad? Janine Bell is a hate crimes scholar and a professor at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. She says, hold on. There are particular signs that are universal. The Klan is a sign that's universal. But there are other powerful symbols for which the meaning is in the eyes of the beholder. Individuals who wear MAGA hats see them as supporting the idea that America should be made great again. It's not necessarily linked with this idea of white supremacy. Others see the MAGA hats as the racial hatred that was invoked at particular times by members of the Republican Party. In that way, the MAGA hat is a very complicated sign. It's not the straightforward sign that you get with something like a, a clan hood. A- another way of saying that might be Rorschach test. Right, exactly. Some people see two faces. Some people see a vase. When I see them, I, I have a visceral, you know, sort of flinch. It's a big red hat, red flag for me. It puts me on my guard being prepared to expect the worst. Does the fault lie in me? No. There's certainly been rhetoric attached to the hats that suggests violence. 
the rhetoric during the campaign that involved pummeling protesters suggests that not all ideas are welcome. And yet, it's also not a smoking gun. It is also not a smoking gun. And yet, the internet blew up with outrage over what was perceived as the smoking gun of racism, of privilege, of white oppression. So was that unfair? Everyone's entitled to a view informed by their perspective. Absolutely entitled. So I don't think fair versus unfair is the right way to see this. I also think that we all live in the same world, right? And it's important for us to be honest with each other about the impressions that we're creating when we engage with one another. So individuals who put on the hats, they know how others see them. They have a sense of this. These are polarized times where we talk about things. They may decide to wear them anyway, and that's, of course, their right. But this is not surprising that one might see the wearing of this hat as an invocation of racism. Let me ask you this. If those kids had been wearing Kentucky Wildcat hats, do you think we'd be even having this conversation? I do not think that we would be having these conversations at all. There were hundreds or thousands or I don't know what number of people who had seen everything they needed to see in the first frame of the Lincoln Memorial encounter. Is there enough evidence in that single frame for anyone, no matter what their worldview, to draw a conclusion? You're not going to be able to get a witness on this one or a good tape on this one because I haven't seen the video. You're the only American, I think, who has not. I study hate crimes. So I have more interest in it because I do it for work than most people. And I haven't watched it. It's been across my Facebook feed 50,000 times. No, no. I know what the first frame, however, is like because that's what, you know, is the cover in all the Sure, it's, it's the thumbnail. Right. So if I were to assert, because I and I believe it, that first frame closed to the case for a lot of people. Right. I just want you to characterize that reaction to the kid, the hat, the smirk, the whole deal. Was it enough evidence to be drawing conclusions? As a scholar, that's my perspective, that one picture does not allow you to draw conclusions. Janine, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Janine Bell is a hate crime scholar and professor at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law. Her latest book is Hate Thy Neighbor, Move-In Violence and the Persistence of Racial Segregation in American Housing. The angriest commentators on the MAGA hat episode insisted that the story, the real story that will not go away, is about race and chronic disrespect, conscious or otherwise. The problem is surely not confined to American politics. On January 15th, in a Nairobi hotel office complex, al-Shabaab militants shot and killed nearly two dozen people. Later in the day, leading the New York Times coverage of the incident was a graphic Associated Press photo of dead bodies slumped over at cafe tables. It didn't stay there for long. After readers told the Times that the prominent display of that image was inappropriate, editors placed it elsewhere in the article. Among those critics was Vox Visuals editor Kainaz Amaria, who said that the Times' insensitivity in publishing that photo touched several nerves. The initial nerve was, 
how could you publish an image of dead bodies during an ongoing attack before families could be notified? The nerve was about privacy, was about dignity, especially to the dead, and what respect Western media should offer them. The Times came back with the sort of boilerplate explanation we make decisions on a case-by-case basis, et cetera, et cetera. But you weren't buying it. You tweeted that the decision to run that image, quote, stands alongside decades of visual coverage exploiting the pain and suffering of black and brown folks. The Times said, and I quote, we want to be respectful to the victims and to the affected, those affected by the attack. And then there's a but. But we also believe it's important to give our readers a clear picture of the horror of an attack like this. I think the conversation that we should be having is much broader, a more introspective look at how media has viewed and documented and published the issues and lives around people from other countries, mostly developing countries, as opposed to how we have published images and viewed people from developed countries. Kenyans didn't wake up and one day see this image and decide we need to push back and say, take this image down because we feel like it's disrespectful. This stands alongside decades of coverage of their own community, of different African countries. So, for example, I've been a photojournalist for about 20 years. Every time I go to photojournalism conferences, I'm guaranteed to see carnage of black and brown bodies and not the same amount of carnage of, let's say, white bodies. Why? Because photojournalism is defined by images of destruction, death, and violence towards the most vulnerable and the poorest people around the world. What you're describing is not so much discrimination as just the incidence of raw violence that might be captured in photojournalism. I think the American media is saying, listen, in order to shock the audience into caring about someone that's far away, we need to show the most extreme, otherwise they won't care. I hope that we would start thinking about why. What does that say about us as a society, that in order for us to even begin to care about what's happening to a child or a community or a city across the world, that we have to be jarred by the most tragic, horrible, terrible image in order to care. I'm thinking of the image that the New York Times recently published of the young girl in Yemen. That image went around the world to show the horrors of famine that that country has experienced due to the conflict. That image is pushing up against the extremes of humanity. How far can we take this? If we're sensitized as an audience to expect that shock, then we have to continue to shock. There are limited resources to devote and limited Western audience interest. If it takes a shocking image to tell the story under these circumstances, is that not some justification? I understand that news is news, and the way we define news might not change 
overnight, but I think it's important to have the conversation of how are we representing the news that's coming out of other countries, and are we telling a story that is not only informative to the American audience, but responsible to the local audience and the local lives that are going through the news story. These images, whether it's terror victims in a Nairobi cafe or a dead Syrian child refugee on a Turkish beach, it cuts through. It dramatizes stakes. It does trigger action. Mm -hmm. I actually have some sympathy for that argument. Sure. But I notice we haven't seen many images of dead bodies in domestic mass shootings, for example. No pulse pictures, no Sandy Hook pictures. No pictures of people that have died from opioid use disorder. I think if you look at the coverage historically, you will see a double standard. It goes a little deeper than simply breaking news and showing images of dead bodies. It is about who gets a full narrative of humanity in overall coverage. The way that we approach international news often is that we parachute into countries and we cover the most desperate situations. Our country and our people have a much wider spectrum of humanity and narrative. The Times says it's going to review its protocols. Are there one or more guidelines that you would suggest to them, a checklist to go through before making a call like this? Journalists, and particularly photojournalists, that have to be in the field and witness these really difficult situations have a tendency to look at their careers as sacrifice, and, and they do sacrifice, but they also see themselves as the good guys. And so when people are pointing fingers back at them saying, how dare you make this image or how can you publish this image, the immediate reaction is, this is my job. I'm the good guy. I'm simply the conduit of this information. The harder thing is to actually consider the fact that we could be doing some cumulative harm along the way. It is harder to interrogate that and then to create different editorial standards, knowing and understanding that there is a chance that if we're telling the news in the way that we have continued to tell the news, that we could be creating harm to the people in the stories. That's an opportunity for a newsroom to reflect, for an industry to reflect on the visual language that we've created and the way that we've framed stories and to start working on countering some of the narratives that have created racial stereotypes, that have further marginalized communities, that have shown communities repeatedly as being impoverished, destitute, desperate, helpless. That is the hard work that needs to be done. There's a word for that. I think they call it soul-searching. Soul-searching, humility, and listening. Listening is actually one of the core tenets of our profession. We go in, we listen, we learn, we feel, and we report. Now, the people in our stories are asking us to do that as it relates to them and the way that we've been doing it for history. We owe them that. Kainaz, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. Kainaz Amaria is a visuals editor at Vox. 
The New York Times declined to make an editor available to speak with us. Coming up, immersed in otherness, weighed down by the stupid things we think we know. This is On The Media. On The Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash on the media. That's Indeed.com slash on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. The National Mall is a place where encounters happen. Groups of people, many with agendas, cheek by jowl in the most public of public squares. This is where the Native American elder comes in. He was coming from an indigenous people's march. And it was full of prayer, full of promise of a better tomorrow. You know, that's, that was the message we was putting out. The kids were in D.C. to protest what they see as a national shame. Unaware, perhaps, that Nathan Phillips was too. The shame being the legacy of genocide, to this day depriving Native Americans of adequate clean water, accessible health care, voting rights, protection for indigenous lands, and more. Which is why Washington Post political columnist Karen Tumulty tweeted the idea that, quote, Covington Catholic High School should organize a spring break project doing service on a Native American reservation for a meaningful encounter, not a glancing one. Tumulty's proposal was roundly criticized as putting the onus on Native Americans to do the work of educating the ignorant mainstream. But presented with deep hatred and racism in their own country, some indigenous people in Canada came to a very different conclusion. These six travelers have been invited to experience indigenous Canada for the next four weeks. Other than that, they know nothing about the journey that lies ahead. First contact from APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network, is a Canadian documentary series based on an Australian series of the same name. Vanessa Lowen is executive producer of the Canadian version of the show. There had been a study published that cited that six out of ten Australians had never had contact with Indigenous people. So the producers looked at that and thought maybe if there was more contact, there would be less tensions between the communities. It was a success. And so four years later, six white Canadians, Ross, Avonlea, Don, Ashley, Jamie Sue, and Dallas, were assembled for a full immersion adventure. They came with suitcases and a full complement of ugly Indian stereotypes. I think of alcoholism. I think of drug abuse, a whole bunch of partying and flop houses. They just always get money and, and handouts. How are they the worst off when they're given so much? We are being made to pay for something that we didn't do. Where's my money going? Over 28 days, they moved through different communities, from assimilated middle-class families to rural Inuit trappers up in Nunavut to urban areas rife with the pathologies of blight. Notably, the visitors learn about Canada's horrifying 120-year history of residential schools in which Indigenous children were taken from their communities and sometimes actually kidnapped to be transported to boarding schools in order to de-Indian them. The schools were finally shut down about 20 years ago, but they have left generations of trauma. 
Rick Lightning, a residential school survivor, now specializing in First Nations awareness, schooled the visitors. My brother was in residential school, and my sister-in-law were in residential school. They were they died alcoholics. Whatever happened to them in there, but the effect on their children was unbelievable. My father went to the industrial school in Red Deer. He told me a story. They were working out in the fields and there was a big hole there and their bigger boys were bringing in a wheelbarrow and they dumped it and there was all these little bodies that fell in there and there, one of them was their little brother, David Lightning. Some of the show's white stars take this information hard because among the things they came in not knowing was the nature of the education they had signed up for. We originally sought Canadians with strong opinions, a sense of adventure, and a desire to know more about their own country. We asked them a wide range of questions about different politically charged issues like hunting and environmentalism and indigenous issues. And then as they got further along through the interview process with our casting team and started to see producers, we started to tell them the show will be focused on Indigenous Canada and Indigenous issues. And at that point, I mean, I imagine in the States with these kinds of race relations, it's similar. People who feel these things are generally not shy. In fact, in Canada, people might be a little bit more shy because we fancy ourselves like really, really polite. And this racism that we experience every day is sort of one of our best kept secrets between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. But people are surprisingly unafraid to say these things. The Native Canadians that your adventurers met along the way were, as a group, just so charming, so thoughtful, so calm, so wise. But the problem with saving us, they've left us with no religion, no belief system. And so that's something that's important to understand, is that we have a way of prayer. Churches didn't bring God here. We had prayer. Such great exemplars of both the traumas and the triumphs of First Nations people. Was that by design? Was it a tough call? It was not by design, is all I can say. We picked people who we knew could speak to the community. A lot of the time, these people are activists, like Michael Champagne in the first episode, or teachers and elders like Rick Lightning. And these are people that are in our communities. The stereotypes are so deeply embedded in the fabric of Canada that people just choose not to see that there is a whole other side to being Indigenous than what they're seeing in the news and what they're seeing sometimes in their cities. While your six white folks went from significant assimilation onto Nunavut, where they saw a much more traditional lifestyle. So what would be an example of local food? Nature. Seal. Whale. No. And they also visited a drop-in center for homeless people. They encountered people with drinking problems, ex-felons. My mom wasn't uh, wasn't really around in my life when I was a youth. Yeah. So uh, I just was angry about the whole my mom situation leaving when I was a kid. And, but it took me to uh, have a drug overdose, and well, I committed my crime, and then I, I tried to escape from reality. Not a whitewashed picture of Indigenous life. You could have just created a Potemkin village, but you didn't. Why? Because with the issues with crime and addiction, those are all things that we understand come out of colonization. And we wanted people to really be able to drill down 
A, to see that these people are just people, B, to see that they might have something in common with these people. In the case of Jamie Sue, that really had a profound effect on her because of her own struggles with addiction, meeting these folks with addiction problems and stuff, and really just peeling away the layers that we're all human. The best way to defeat racism is through education, and so many people choose not to be educated because it's just easier to read the headlines and move on and have your strong opinions and think you're right. So this was our one opportunity to educate and make people have a little bit of empathy for their Indigenous community. But there was some backlash from the First Nations communities. I think that they felt like, why is it our responsibility to make the non-Native population of Canada understand that we're just people. We're sick of having to do this. Why do we have to keep doing this? I will say that in the case of Michael Champagne, he was initially asked to be on the show and said, there's no way in hell I'm doing this. And he said, like, why would they even think that I would want to be a part of this? This is crazy. And then he sat back and really thought about it and was like, I have a responsibility to my community to help educate and help build this bridge. And he did it. And now I see Michael all the time. We live in the same city. He says it was a completely valuable experience, and he's so glad that he let his guard down and put himself in that situation. At the end, the transformations are uneven. At one extreme, you have one of the women, Jamie Sue, and a young guy named Dallas, who actually see themselves now as advocates and allies of the indigenous community. I want to be part of the solution, and I don't want to be part of the problem. And you can also classify the problem as silence. The fact that there's six of us sitting here talking about it right now is a really good step forward. And on the other end, there's these two guys, Ross and Don, who from the beginning have been almost caricatures of stubborn old white guys who believe what they believe and they just won't be budged. I'm still skeptical about the whole school thing because it was all, they stole our kids. They ruined our families. They took us all away. That was the thing to focus on. It's not focusing on. That connotation of that is it was a violent taking of all the children away from the families. It's not focusing on. They took their culture. They took their language away. No, you can't take someone's culture. You can teach them a new culture. For the purposes of reality show drama, were you assuming or even hoping that they'd stay in character to the bitter end? At no point did we approach this series as though it was a reality show. I know that it inherently falls within the genre, but we were treating it as a documentary series where we wanted to document their true experiences and we were not manufacturing them. The only thing that we were aware of was everybody has to undergo psychological testing, obviously. We can't send people for 28 days to remote areas and risk someone being not well. As a result of the psychological testing, we knew that some people would have more of a propensity for change than others. But, of course, none of that is a given. Anything could have happened. And I will say, Ross, who really seemed not to change, and even though that, you know, is, is, I think, true of who he is, after he met some of the inmates from his area, he went back that Christmas and took them gifts as a way to show them support and continue to encourage them on their journey towards making their life better. So while he maybe didn't change in his opinions that he spouts to people, he certainly felt a connection. The show, which started on APTN, a network explicitly for Indigenous peoples, It now has a lot of mainstream distribution. What's the reaction been? 
Well, we certainly always struggle with getting eyeballs on what we're creating out of the Indigenous community. There's a mentality of that's for them and not for us. With First Contact, we were actually quite hopeful that it would reach the mainstream, and most of our feedback is from non-Indigenous people. Now we have been bombarded in a good way for requests for educational packages, so we're working on creating a curriculum that will accompany the educational videos that are being distributed by our distributor. I mean, I just had a call this week from women from a religious organization in Ontario who were organizing screenings for their communities. That's really the response that stays, the responses of the militancy or the this is all lies or I'm sick of hearing about residential schools, those comments certainly came and then they quickly fell away. Those people haven't stuck around and that's all that we care about. What we care about is that there's going to be a long tail of this teaching that can be taken forward for hopefully generations. Well, Vanessa, thank you very much. Thank you. Vanessa Lowen is an executive producer of the Canadian version of First Contact. For Canadians, First Contact is set against a backdrop of pain and, more recently, reconciliation. Here's former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper in a special joint session of the House of Commons and the Senate in 2008. Mr. Speaker, I stand before you today to offer an apology to former students of Indian residential schools. The treatment of children in Indian residential schools is a sad chapter in our history. Harper's apology for this dark century of Canadian history was followed by the founding of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which ultimately released its conclusions in 2015. For more than six years, the commission traveled the country, hearing from survivors. Nearly 38,000 say they experienced physical or sexual abuse. The hope of our commission for reconciliation in the future is that we as adults can make a commitment to the children of the future that we will do what we can today to make their world of tomorrow a better place. The report set forth 94 recommendations, including the right to mass media. APTN, which was founded in 1999, became a fundamental piece of the reconciliation process. Jean LaRose is CEO. Well, our mandate is basically to share our stories amongst ourselves because we are not one people in Canada. You have First Nations, you have Inuit, you have Métis peoples, so we better know each other, but also share it with all Canadians. Canadian experience has been to create a false image, a stereotype of Native people in Canada. I remember my grade five school book showed us as semi-naked savages, dirty, unkempt, full of lice. So all Canadians have this image of who we are, this stereotype, but the reality of it is across the country, our communities and our peoples are involved in every facet of life. We have engineers, we have politicians, we have ministers in the cabinet, we have people across everywhere in industry that are making a huge contribution and huge difference in this country. So for us to be still perceived as either the noble savage or the drunken savage is something that needs to be addressed. On the other hand, your channel isn't just a propaganda channel highlighting the nobility part of the stereotype. Part of truth and reconciliation is truth, and you do not turn your cameras away from chronic problems of an underclass, from 
transgenerational trauma from dysfunctional families, from dysfunctional lives, and there's backlash attached to that from indigenous communities. There are people who believe that you are yourselves portraying a side of indigenous life that they would prefer not to advertise to the world. They take yourself defeating. How big a problem is that for you? Um, I say it would be a bigger problem when we started turning the lens on ourselves about 10 years ago. The backlash then was quite strong. But we're seeing a change in our communities. We're seeing a change in the leadership. There is a younger leadership, but there's also leadership that wants to be more accountable, that wants to be more transparent, slowly moving into place. So we're having less of that backlash than we did when we first started. What we're seeing is that the actual community members will tell us, thank you for telling that story because we didn't dare. For example, APTN had a series called Blackstone that ran for five years. It created a fictional First Nation. The plot started off by portraying everything that was bad in a community, about the leadership, about the politics, about everything else. Last season on Blackstone. Gun registered to your name is found at the crime scene. A woman has gone missing. And now, a sizzling new season of Blackstone begins. And initially, we were severely criticized for portraying ourselves in a bad light. But the goal was, over the course of the uh, series, to show how the community could start taking matters into their own hands. People could start making their voices heard. They could start pushing for change. We started getting a lot of support for it, to the point that when we ended the season, we got criticized for stopping it. So... It did, for many people, create that aspirational viewpoint that things can be better, but we have to be part of the solution. We can't sit there and expect things to happen for us. We've done that for 150 years. It doesn't work. We've got to take matters into our own hands and make our lives better. And we believe that APTN is part of that transition and helps people sort of focus on the broader picture and not just today's reality. Well, Jean, thank you very much. My pleasure. Jean LaRose is Chief Executive Officer of APTN. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Lana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leia Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asta Chattervedi. We had more help from Zandra Ellen and Alice Maiden... And our show was edited this week by our executive producer, Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer this week was Sam Baer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio.